0: announcement to make to you young, to the people of America?
1: The mothership has landed. It's the classic guitar rock podcast. Gentlemen, if you'll examine your charts, please. Let me show you a clip from my latest film where my faulty depth perception kept me from yelling cuts at the proper time. When dealing with powerful criminal elements, one can never be too well prepared. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. Your mother was a hamster, and your father smelt of elderberry. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley.
0: first thing you do is to get the psychological edge on your adversary by showing supreme
1: confidence. Oh, oh, oh Joe Foley told me he read at the National inquiry the only paper you read the truth nowadays. Oh, I told you I am in command here, and I will give the orders, Captain.
2: All music is important, Dick. It's the universal language.
1: One of our best hopes for the eventual realization of the brotherhood of
2: man. You get
1: all these crazy people that come and throw these junk on stage, you know. I thought it was one of these rubber bats. I picked it up. It was a real bat. You know. Is it alive? Well, it worked till I bit the head of it, you know. The taste of bats is very salty. Now go away or I shall taunt you a second time. make nice. batteries to power. Always start, I'd like to say something. There's no reason why you shouldn't have complete confidence in your chances to come out of this thing alive in one piece. From coast to coast, from border to border, from one end to the other, and all points in between, the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast is on.
0: Yes! That's awesome!
1: We crank up and break down the great guitar-driven rock of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And you are invited to come along. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. And now, your host, Jeremy Lunnon. Yeah, we don't know anything about that fellow there. Who is he? Where's he coming from? It's time for the Classic Guitar Rock
0: Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. I'm Jeremy, and hello, I'm John. Here's John, and we're back. Back for more. Ex- absolutely. I'm excited about the topic tonight. Our album of choice, well, my choice, album <laughs> album that we assigned to John is uh, UFOs, Strangers in the Night. Many people consider it one of the best uh, live albums. We'll see what John thinks in a minute. Yes. But, but we got some other things we want to talk about before then. Now, in our last time we got together... And John and I don't, just so you know, we might exchange a few texts, but we don't plan. No, we, we do just not come plan. in here and we, we go. He'll give me an assignment and then I will put it off. <laughs> yeah,
2: it put, yeah, that's pretty much what I do. Waiting for the deadline to <laughs> yeah. roll in and sweating.
0: So I'm not sure what John will have to say. He did tell me, it was kind of ominous, that he does have some opinions tonight. I do. So that'll be good. So a few things we want to circle back on, because when we last got together, we were about to go see Wishbone Ash. Yeah, we actually got out of the dark and dirty basement. We did. We got out of the basement, we went downtown, and we saw Wishbone Ash.
2: And they were at the Bing Crosby. What did you think about the theater there?
0: I, I love it. And what would you? Is that what you would? Con, is that Art Deco? What would oh, you? Oh, I would believe that? it's full on Art Deco. Yeah, because it was built in the early twenties oh, or 20s something. Twenties or
2: thirties. It's so. It's very grandiose.
0: Very grandiose. Very ornate. Yes, I think it used to be called the Met. You know? I think at one time that one was called the Met, but then there was another little place called the Met downtown. Gotcha. I think. But you said something interesting about theaters. Yes. Back so explain to us the so, way that works. So
2: back in the day, they had a vertically integrated film industry, meaning that a single s- studio would own the actors, they would own the studio, they would own everything, including the theaters. Mm-hmm. So basically, it was kind of like a television network in a way, because mm-hmm. we have Fox theaters, we have all AMC. Well. When, we went, when the 70s, when the film industry went to independence, all that kind of stuff broke up, basically. But the Bing was part of one of the – I might have been an RKO or something. I haven't done the research on it. But it's a – I mean, if you ever come to Spokane and you get a chance to go see a concert there, you won't be disappointed. It's a beautiful venue.
0: Yeah, it's great. And so if you were in a city back then and you were seeing a, an MGM movie, right. there might be a metro – Goldwyn Mayor. and Metro Goldwyn Mayer Theater, right? A Fox, a Fox Theater, Theater, depending on the studio. Very yep. interesting. And so, in a lot of cities, they've kept those monikers. original monikers because well, we have a Fox Theater right. in Spokane. And most of
2: those theaters got torn down. Yeah. yeah, a lot of them didn't. They couldn't upgrade to fire codes in terms of uh, nowadays. There's like certain amount of egresses they have, mm-hmm. they have to have, and there's ways people have to exit and they didn't meet up the fire codes they just tore them down. Wow. So there was lots of art, I mean the the building is amazingly beautiful. It's one oh, of the, yeah. it's one of the fewer venues where it's almost better to sit in the balcony than the floor.
0: I agree. And you notice the balcony has more seats. The balcony actually had
2: so if I was correct in my research there was 753 seats in that theater. Mm-hmm. And probably 2 thirds of them are upstairs or yeah. in the, are in the balcony.
0: Yeah but the way it's built and we were there for the sound check and we were down on the floor it was cool it we'd was go, really cool we go up in the balcony and there's no there's not a bad seat in the place there's not a bad seat in the place Yeah. so one of the things i was excited about is in september joe satriani is going to be at that little theater wah, 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 yeah. wah, wah, i think yeah. i think i'm going to try and go to that so it's it's one of
2: those things is like sometimes you hear about bands that play small theaters Mm-hmm. And you're thinking like, oh, they're rinky dink. You know, the theater's just bogus or whatever. Mm-hmm. That is not the case with the Bing. The Netflix. Bing is – it's actually a very good venue to play live. Yeah. And I was having little, you know, delusions of grandeur. Like, we can get a little we band. Should play and a we should Yeah. Because you could – I think the, the number I saw is you could rent it out for 1500 bucks. Wow. And it's like, wow, well, we could sell tickets. Yeah. We could have a lemonade stand <laughs> out front. We can invite our family and friends and charge them 40 bucks a head.
0: Yeah. It was fun. It was. It's a. It was a fun place. So we had fun. We went for the sound check. We met uh, the promoter for Wishbone Ash, the guy named John, who kind. got got us in. Lovely really night. nice guy. So we did the sound check. We went and had dinner. It was fun. It was. It was a fun time. It was, it was a lovely date. It was a lovely date. Yes, we had a lovely date. What'd you think of the? What'd you think of the show? Now, now I know, John. This is not. You never listened to Argus, right? No, so I never listened to Argus. We gave him the assignment to listen to the album Argus before the concert. He went and saw the show. So, from a performance standpoint, even if you aren't a, a huge fan of the band or whatever, what what did you think? What were your thoughts of the show?
2: So, my my opinion is, so in that venue, there's not a lot of light show. I mean, right. they'll have so a lot of bands will have, you know, the the big concerts I go to, they'll have huge lighting effects and stuff like that, and this doesn't have any of that. Right. So basically what happens at that is the band has to be the light show. Right. The band has to be the performing. The band has to, you know, project all that kind of cool vibe to the audience. And I think they did a very good job of that. The The level of musicianship was just so high. I was, yeah. I was frankly flabbergasted by how good the, the band members were. The guitar. Yeah. The lead guitar player, we played, um, is that, uh, Les Paul Jr. Double cut. Yeah. And I've, I'd never really liked Gibson, I'm so more of a Fender guy, mm-hmm. but I was in my mind. I was thinking during that show, like I should probably look into getting one of those. It was a nice one. He was a nice yeah. guitar, but he was uh, he only played one guitar all night. That mm-hmm. guitar stayed in tune, but it was uh, his musicians. The guitarist, guitarist musicianship was just amazing, and the bass player. I was surprised how good he was. Yeah. He didn't drop a note all night.
0: Yeah, and he played some songs. He was playing a pick. Some not songs he wasn't. So right. he kind of switched back and forth, which is kind of rare to v- see.
2: And he was an older guy too. Yeah, and the guitar player was probably in his forties. I think.
0: Yeah, they had a they had a a younger guitarist, second guitarist, and drummer. Right. But it looked, and I think they said the bass player, the only original one is Andy Powell, right. who was the one guitar player. And the other guy, I think they said the bass player had been in the band for like twenty five years. Yeah, he was you know
2: super good. I was really I was a little jealous of his talent because yeah, he, he was, was good. he was singing backup plus playing bass. Yeah, and sometimes when you're doing that role, is that you sing in ways
0: it's difficult to play the bass at
2: the same time.
0: And isn't that interesting on the bass because people think, well the bass is a simpler instrument, it's, it's only got, only got four, got four strings. strings. But the way you articulate to play the bass, it's to me it's much harder to sing playing the bass than the guitar.
2: Yeah. Do you I agree would, with I that? I would say so. If you're yeah. if you're a strummer, yeah. it's easy to get into a
0: pattern, but um he was just really, really good. I was yeah. just surprised how good he was. Tasty. And that's the that's the thing that I thought is all the playing was very Tasty, yes. Right, and it was nice to. It was loud enough that you felt the power. Right, it was right. loud, but it was not so loud it hurt your ears. Right, it wasn't whatever. ear bleeding. Exactly.
2: You know, yeah. It was it, it, it a good concert level. Um, I was. I listened to Argus a couple of hours before I went there, mm-hmm. so I, I was a filmer with a few of the songs, and they played that album cover to cover basically. It was. Mm-hmm. They did a very good job of that. Um, I think I may have been the youngest person there in the audience <laughs> yeah, yeah. by about 20 years, and I'm yeah. 52. Mm-hmm. So it, it, there was an older crowd, and uh, they didn't completely fill up the venue, which is kind of disappointing. Right. But part of the problem is I think they didn't get much P- PR here in town. And another thing is there was uh, several events going on downtown Spokane at the same time. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I'm sure schedule-wise that maybe we have a big – the Lilac Festival Parade. It's the biggest, biggest parade in the parade. world. And that was going on, and Hamilton. It was and the, Hamilton. I think it was a, either last night or second to the last night and of the, Hamilton.
2: And the Fox had something going on, too, with, oh, like, yeah. EW's, uh, I think, orchestra or something.
0: Yeah, so there was a lot of stuff, lot of stuff happening. Going on. But it wasn't a bad uh, showing in terms of no. the crowd. But it was a good, a good show. Very good show. Yeah, I enjoyed it. And here's... Here's what I thought. Here's the epiphany. John, I've been to the mountaintop. I've had I've had I've I've had a vision. Okay. <laughs> John John doesn't know how he's part of this vision. Okay, so our job, we are classic rock anthropologists. I would say that's pretty apt. We're I thought of, you know who I thought of? We're Jane Goodall. Okay, we're, we're we're the Jane Goodalls of <laughs> classic rock. And here's what made me think this. And this has been a recurring theme, but project this out, John, five years, ten years. So here's Andy Powell, who's the guy in, yeah. in Wishbone Ash, who actually... He's older. He's got to be seventy. He's he's a very – I mean, the guy is super talented. Super talented and seemed healthy. He seemed you know? healthy. There he's, wasn't
2: he, he wasn't straining. I mean, at his age, he wasn't straining anywhere on stage. And
0: and I was surprised that vocally he did really vocally, good. Vocally, I've not heard a seven-year-old yeah. that's that yeah. good. But what I was thinking was, and I don't mean to be all sad, but a lot of these guys in this and and ladies, mostly guys, but we're looking at the last five to 10 years, right? We are for for a lot of bands. And so this is a heavy responsibility to be a classic rock anthropologist. Right. So we have to take this serious. And so, um, you know, but I was thinking that as I watched Andy Powell, okay, this guy's still vital. You know, Sammy Hagar still has a few years left, you know, interviewing Graham Bonnet. He's 75 years old. Does he have another 10 years? Probably not. David Coverdale, 70 years old. Oh, he's that old, huh? And he's the latest one where there, there's videos out now that they're on their new tour that, man, his vocals aren't good. And and that's just the reality of it. Yeah. So we're kind of seeing the tail end of this classic rock, which is kind of sad.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, and I brought this up on a previous episode mm-hmm. where, you know, if you think about the music that we're listening to is 40 to 50 years old (laughs) and we, we really want the younger crowd to, you know, jive on our tunes, you know, but if you think about like kids in the seventies, were they really, you know, cutting a rug to the 1920s rag time? They weren't, they, they weren't,
0: but I will say this. Um, and, and we're probably biased. I know I'm biased because this happened to be the generation we grew up in. 70s, 80s, you know. I will say this. Like, my kids, they know 80s music, you know. So, for whatever reason, <laughs> there is a, a swath of this classic rock music that that will continue to be played and be popular. But in terms of a genre, you know, are there and we've kind of talked about this, are there younger bands that are carrying on that tradition? Yes, there are. Greta Van Fleet, Greta Van Fleet. we've mentioned. There's others. I just think music has moved on. Well, and it's it's not a Yeah, bad it's thing. it's not a bad thing. And and there're still some vestiges. We've talked about Frontier Records, it's trying to keep the flag flying and I hope I hope they do, but it's, I don't know that it's the genre that has moved on as much, but just the way music is delivered now is different too. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's going to be interesting to see over the next five years. Yeah. I was actually listening to a podcast
2: today on, uh, who gave it? I can't remember who gave it. it was on guitars mm-hmm. and they were talking about, uh, it was on Rhett Schull. He's a guitar guy. Oh yeah, Rhett yeah. Schull. He's a, yep. um, he's he's from the South, I think. But he has a pretty he's a pretty talented musician. He goes around with touring acts all the time. But he was talking about how no new rock bands or bands are playing Gibson's any longer. Interesting. Is that they're they're playing Fenders? Yeah, because Fenders are generally a little cheaper. Yeah, Gibson has priced themselves out of the market. Well, gi- yeah. according to Red uh, Gibson has priced themselves to
0: our crowd. Th- that's exactly right. They're they're aiming. It's you know what? It's the Harley Davidson crowd. Harley Davidson crowd. Yeah. It's it's doctors and lawyers that can pay five grand, five for, grand a for a grand for guitar. a guitar. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So
2: they. It was kind of interesting. Like that brand is now like an antique. Yeah. 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 Because when did Les Paul make his first Les Paul? Fifty four, like
0: fi- yeah, something early fifties. Yeah, know.
2: crazy. It's it's so it's interesting to think that we have this love and affinity for a brand that makes that used to at least make some incredible instruments, but now it's like the the modern
0: youth are not and they're not they're not interested in it at yeah. all. you know you can say it's sad, but it's just it's changed. You know the market has changed and 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 what's the old line, you know, changes aren't permanent, but change is. Yes. Uh, Everything old is new. Is again. new. Yeah. Totally. Well, I don't know if it's going to be new anymore, but so, but, but here's, here's the rest of my vision. And I, hopefully John shares this because, you know, it's all, he, he's, he's going to be the punchline. And that is, you know, we've already talked about John. I, I respect John because he's, he loves music. I'm the dinosaur here, right? I'm the one <laughs> trying to, <laughs> I'm the one trying to hold on to the past. Where John, John's music tastes lean more towards new stuff, right? And so I kind of see the the model for us, at least I, I'm excited about this, is I like this idea of John, we're gonna make you listen to this old crap. <laughs> I I accept
2: the assignment. Yeah. yeah. And
0: so and so I think what we can do out of fairness, you know, a 90 to 10 ratio. <laughs> what we can do out of fairness is John might occasionally say, "Hey, here's this album I want you to listen to and you tell me what you think." But for the most part, we're going to make John listen yeah, to classic amazing. rock stuff. So, and that's what we did mm-hmm. with with the Strangers in the Night, which we will talk about. And before we get to that, I did want to mention thing one thing, because I think it's a, appropriate, because, of course, one of the key members of UFO was a guy named Michael Shanker. Well, the Michael Shanker group just released a new album on the 27th, so last Friday. It's called Universal. It's I listened to the whole thing today on Spotify. I've listened to it a couple times, actually. And so... I just today posted a review on the YouTube channel, uh, so you can check that out. But I but I just want to share a couple thoughts on Shanker. <clears throat> Michael Shanker is a genius, and like many geniuses, he's crazy, right? Okay. I, I think that's. I think it. There's yeah, a connection. More often than not, it goes yeah. in hand. And maybe crazy is not the right word, but you know what I mean. Is it's a lot eccentric. of times eccentric. A lot of times savant level geniuses are they're out there right yeah. and and he's out there and one of the things the reason that and this is in my in my humble opinion because he's probably my favorite guitar player he has never had two albums two contiguous to you know, consecutive? Consecutive, that's the word. He has never had two consecutive albums with the same lineup. Interesting. Never. Okay. Now, I I could be wrong. The the first album, the first MSG album in 80, and then the one in 81 might have had the same lineup, but I think at least one person had to change. But my point is the new album, it's called the Michael Shanker Group, but every single song, with the exception of one, says you know, song titled in Michael Shanker Group featuring Barry Sparks or featuring Brian Titchy or featuring Tony Carey, and the point is, Michael Shanker never has the same lineup. So is he kind of like uh, Eric Clapton in that regard? Like every album has to be different? It's it's
2: or is he re- or is he recreating the same so- sonic sound every time?
0: I I See, don't I don't know what it is. I think he just he just works with. A bunch of different people. Sorry, I'm drinking a pop and I'm going to belch. I don't want to do that. So he just works with a bunch of different people all of the time to the point though that if you trace his career, he's probably had 12 different singers. Oh, really? How do you, how do you build a fan base without some kind of identity, especially in the vocal department. I mean, if you're switching drummers, it's probably not that big a deal. Nothing against drummers. But the reality is, it's the singer that most people, especially if, unless they're, you know, guitar nerds, it's the singers that most people recognize. And here, if you have a different singer on every album, how are you ever going to get traction? Right. And that's been his M.O. forever. Yeah, same same with um Van Halen and Gary Sharon. Well, yeah.
2: That's their, you know? their third singer, you know. Yeah. And nobody nobody adopted that guy.
0: No one did. Yeah. You know? And and to be honest, nothing well, they did have the one album with Roth after Gary Sharon, but that was really the end. Once Gary Sharon came yeah, in as was, far as you know, putting out new stuff. But yeah. but but multiply that by five with Shanker, because he's had even more lead singers and so he's got this new singer now but you can't even say that well who is the lead and that was the thing that gets gets me is if every single song is featuring someone then who the heck is in the michael shanker group right i mean you don't you know michael's there but who's who's the drummer of the michael shanker group well on this song it's brian Titchy. on this song it's simon phillips on this so that that's frustrating to me find a singer Keep them. They got this guy, Ronnie Romero, who's kind of like the Michael Shanker in the singing world. He was with, he sang for Rainbow. He sang for Vandenberg. He's singing with Shanker. He's got like four different bands. He's involved, same type of deal, right? Gotcha. I think some of that is the, um, it's almost like the, they talk about the gig economy. It's almost like the gig economy in music. Oh. And there are so many of these albums now, Frontiers is the main one, where they will make albums where the guys never even meet. Meet? They're not in the same room together. No. They just record their parts, send it off, put it all together, let's put a CD out, and they sell it. Right. I think that's a lot of it, too. So, anyways. So,
2: did they sell quite a bit? I mean, what's the break even? Half a million? Or don't Can they, I, can I don't they push know. a half a
0: million albums? That's, that's the- a good question. I gotta believe most people are just streaming now. Yeah, I don't know how many people actually <laughs> buy a record. So who know? makes the money now? Is it the, is it just the venture
2: capitalists that rake in the the higher valuation of their stock because they
0: got a new artist on there? Or That's what? a good question. You know what? We should find out. Yeah, I, we should get a record company person oh, on that would be great. And say. How do artists, I know, I know this, I know that artists make hardly nothing, nothing. from streaming. Nothing. It's like yeah. a, a quadrillionth of a penny per play. Oh, yeah. It's it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And I've seen videos on YouTube where people will say, okay, here's here's my song that was on iTunes and Spotify, and I got 500,000 plays. Here's what I made. Right. And it'll be like. 200 bucks or so and I'm, I'm just making that i'm pulling that but it's yeah, it's, it's, it's ridiculously it's, it's horrendous small yeah
2: so i I just don't know who's making i, I guess it must be spotify is making the money the streaming
0: services Pro, well and well the record companies must be making money or they wouldn't be doing it right but i think you know it's it's again another example of the marketplace has just changed uh, that's the way it I is think- I
2: think the record companies are playing it much, much, much safer than they used to play it. Oh, yeah. And at least from what I understand is that the contracts are different now. So it used to be that an artist would, you know, cut a record, they'd get a, it'd get an advance, and then they would go on t- tour to promote the album. Mm-hmm. And that they had a certain, they would get, Whatever merch that they made up and sold, they would get that. They would get their, their concert money. They would get the meet and greet. What if they had that? Mm-hmm. There'd be all these lines of extra income for a concert. So the concert basically became a like a gravy train for artists. Mm-hmm. And I think the the recent contracts is the record company owns a piece of everything, including their social media. So the record company might say, I want you to drink a Pepsi today and take a <laughs> photo of you with it. Yeah. It's in your contract because we told you to do it. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's very strange, but the
0: the flip side is like, you don't really need a record label anymore. Well, And that's the thing. And we talked about it before. And the, the first example that comes to mind is Billie Eilish, you know, Billie Eilish and her brother, whatever his name is, who never gets any credit, but I think he had a lot to do with it. They literally produced her first album in the bedroom. I mean, they, they, he did everything. So on the one hand, the record companies have less power because the, that's one thing, technology and the internet, that has has democratized this whole – anyone – we've said this before. The good news is anyone that wants to produce an album can produce an album. Absolutely. The bad news is anyone when that wants want to, to produce, produce an, an album, album can produce an, an album. album. But it's just – it's changed it. And so all of these legacy artists – That were, uh, that would do an album and do a tour. tour. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way anymore. Yeah.
2: I mean, I was, as we mentioned earlier in the conversation on this podcast, was that I thought about renting out the venue Mm -hmm. because that'd be kind of fun to do, you know, have a concert, you know. But that's, you know, 1800 bucks is not a lot of money in terms of concert stuff. So you could theoretically, if you get some funding, let's say you get 10,000 bucks
0: from your dad, you could go on tour. Yeah, yeah, you could. Well, so yeah. let's think about Wishbone Ash. Gotcha. And it, sorry, we should probably move on, but this is very interesting. So here's Wishbone Ash, not a top-tier band. I hadn't heard of them. Well, you're perfect most people haven't, right? Doesn't mean they're not good, Doesn't but mean they're but not good. they're just not they were they're a a not a top-tier performer. So they're doing a club tour, right? And they You know, they had a number of dates up the West Coast. You know, they were in Portland Portland and Tacoma and and Spokane and they and they They were some California dates. California dates. So probably fifteen West Coast dates over a two week period, right? Or or three weeks. And let's say there, let's say there, it costs them eighteen hundred bucks or two thousand bucks to rent the venue. I don't know if that includes your sound engineer, if that's part of that cost. Yeah, I
2: think there might be some more added costs and security. You've you know?
0: got to think about your hotel, everything you're eating, all of that stuff. What's the, what is the break-even point? How much do you have to sell at the Bing or any other club you're playing to break even? That's what I don't know. I mean. I'm sure they're not making a ton of money. I'm sure they're not making a ton of money. Yeah. So We've, that's why t-shirts cost so much at concerts, yeah, folks. I, I saw,
2: <laughs> I was like, how much are their t-shirts? They're still 70
0: bucks. Yeah. For, oh. for, yeah. I think they had some that were 30, but, but at some concerts, you know, you buy a hoodie, you're paying 200 bucks for that. Right. Thing. <laughs> but anyways, fascinating. But again, as classic rock anthropologists, it's our job to examine examine and discuss explore yes when we come back we're gonna explore a great uh, live album from 1979 it's ufos strangers in the night stay put basement can be a lonely place.
1: Hello? Hello?
0: Is anyone in here? Yet, at the Classic Guitar Rock podcast, the basement is all that Jeremy and John have. Their wives don't want them geeking out on classic rock in the living room. Can you blame them? But you can help. For as little as $3 a month, you can become a supporter on Patreon. Patreon join today and end the cycle visit patreon.com classic guitar rock they'll still be in the basement but at least it's not your basement hello is anyone in here
1: this episode is brought to you by paramount plus Well, let's be honest. You're probably too old anyway. The Classic Guitar Rock Podcast.
0: Welcome back to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast, your classic rock anthropologist. We need a stinger for that. Yeah, we should. We'll we'll make that. Well, I want a big, like a plaque.
2: Like a a desk, like you've entered the office of a rock guitar anthropologist.
0: And uh, there'll be like a skull sitting right there of some old British roadie. Who has died? Right there, That'd <laughs> he, be just great. Died in the he just died in his service. They put him in a flight case and
2: they sent him home.
0: <laughs> That's right. Okay, so if you recall, last week John bravely took on the challenge to uh, listen to what I consider—I don't want to influence John in any way—but I do consider "Strangers in the Night" one of the greatest live rock albums. It's my personal favorite. And so we gave John the assignment to to check it out. So without any further ado, so, and he has opinions. I have
2: opinions. I hope I don't. Uh, okay, we're ready. They're just opinions. They're like, um, there's an old adage what <laughs> yeah. opinions are like. Yeah. We've all got We've them. We've all got them, <laughs> and they all stink. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Strangers in the Night, I listened to it three times mm-hmm. over the course of three days. Good. And I listened to the 2008 remaster. That was the one that was earliest available on Spotify. So gotcha. I'm listening on Spotify. So it has uh, how many tracks on it? Here It has 16 tracks. And you mentioned that you had – yes, yes, yeah. I brought the actual. he got the actual album. Right album in
0: front here. Of you. And so here, let me just interject. This is this is the good and bad about the digital age about Spotify. I mean, who's going to complain about extra material? Well, me, apparently, because that's what I'm going to complain. Cause I'm used, I'm used to this with 13 tracks, I think is what's on a double album set, 13 tracks. You're used to the track order and all of this. Then all of a sudden you go on Spotify and there's, depending on the version you're looking at, there might be 15 tracks. There might be 18 tracks. They're throwing in all this extra stuff. And it looked like on Spotify, there's also a 2020 remaster. So.
2: I'm not sure why they keep remastering it.
0: I, I'm, I'm not sure. And that's the thing is, is you, is you, I made this, I, one of these episodes I was talking about, some of these bands, UFO kinda, not as bad. You know who's terrible about it is Deep Purple and Rainbow. It's like they apparently recorded every single performance they've ever had, and then made an album out of it.
2: <laughs> if you want to have like a field trip of scrolling,
0: oh yes, C- yes come- does the same thing. Yes. By the way, come
2: on, just um to the UFO page on on Spotify, and there's a couple albums that have thirty five tracks. Yeah, so at least yeah. they the, the Spotify albums where there's ten different versions of the live.
0: So when I went back and bought the Phenomenon album, UFO album, you know, you can get it on the one, 180 gram vinyl. Now, now, grams, now that I'm a vinyl snob and I buy the vinyl, well, you get the, you know, that was a one disc record, right? Well, there's a second disc, which is a live show from somewhere that, so they give you this bonus record too. And so on the one hand, yeah, it's cool. Cause you get extra material, but it's also like, dude, Which is the definitive version of Lights Out that I should be listening to? There's like 10 different versions Maybe
2: it's evolving. Maybe it's like everything else on the internet, just getting bigger and bigger each time. Bigger and bigger. So I listened to this album through headphones. Maybe that's important. I I don't have a high-five system in here. I do have some studio monitors, but I listened to it entirely on headphones, some decent quality AKGs. And um, it was actually, I was surprised how good the musicianship was and uh i could i had a little problem with the mix the 2008 mm-hmm. version it it seemed like with with modern mixing on in a studio you can really hear separation between the parts mhm you can hear the drums you can hear each guitar and on this live album i heard a lot of you know i didn't i didn't hear a lot of separation between mm-hmm. the instruments so it's hard to really pick out who what each instrument particularly sounded like—that was right. that was one of the problems I had with it. But the musicianship was very good. And me, I grew up on pop music, so right. I'm, I'm looking for a hook. I'm mm-hmm. looking, and I think only one or two songs had those for me. Right. So the rest of the songs, I was like, I know what this is. It's it's driving rock. Mm-hmm. It's driving arena rock. So, uh, and my uh, and UFO's music in particular, it's very built on an eight bar. Yeah. Or pardon me, on two bars, eight beat. One two three four two two three four, and to make it driving, they always have so on kick, a kick drum guy, mm-hmm. he puts a a kick on the seventh and a half beat. Da-dum, da-dum, so yeah, one, two three four, two, mm-hmm. three, four, two, three, four, two three, four, so that was that whole drive. I heard that over and over. Again. Driving, yeah, so it's driving, that driving. Beat. So that yeah. that figure that note right before the beat right before the bar line propels that song so i, I noticed that on every and another thing i was thinking about is gear mm-hmm. so i heard that i heard i think both of them both of the guitar players are playing les pauls through marshalls
0: yeah
2: because they sounded i think so they, yeah. they sounded very very similar and they weren't really panned well right so i couldn't really tell who was playing what but i really noticed the keyboard mm-hmm so Back in the day, if you wanted to have an electric piano sound, you brought an electric piano with you. Right. And if you wanted to have a B3 with you, you brought a B3, a Hammond B3 organ with a mm-hmm. giant speaker cabinet the with it, uh, um, a Leslie cabinet. And then you brought a bunch of synth- synthesizers, too. So I'm thinking on this same I could visualize how much gear the keyboardist has. Mm-hmm. And it's it's. It <laughs> must have had a separate truck to haul all this right, stuff. Right, right. But there was a—you um, could hear definitely hear like a Fender Rhodes sound, mm-hmm. like an electric piano, kind of more of a funky kind of on a few songs. And I heard the B three on a few songs. I heard synths, and I heard—I um, think I
0: might even heard a piano too. There's some piano in there, some and and some acoustic piano, and some. It's got to be a synth, but a lot of string-type arrangements that's coming from some type. So here's the thing that maybe you don't know, John. Tell me. Paul Raymond, who actually went on to be in the Michael Shanker group later, Paul Raymond, the guitar, the second guitar you're hearing, is also the keyboard player. I didn't know. That's what I thought. So if you notice... That's what I thought. Yeah, if you notice... You never hear a rhythm guitar and keys at the same I time. I did notice that. Yeah. I was like, Is this guy sitting out? Maybe yeah.
2: he's doing dual duty. Yeah. If, that's if exactly he's playing what he keys does. and guitar, he's a f- fantastic he's, musician.
0: And he's a he sings the the other vocals you hear, mm-hmm. any harmonies and stuff. It's Paul Paul Raymond's like the secret weapon in UFO, I think. Yeah. Keys, rhythm guitar, he's a lefty too. And he's normally playing, you were right, either a Les Paul or Michael's playing a V but oh, gotcha! It's pretty much the same. Yeah, don't, don't 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 accuse me of blasphemy. But you got humbuckers. You know, it's pretty much sounds the yeah, same. V and a Les Paul. Um, but yeah, so Paul Raymond's either playing a uh, a Les Paul or I heard an acoustic guitar too. There's some acoustic guitar, and he's might be playing. You mentioned the Wishbone Ash guy, a Les Paul Junior. He plays oh. a Les Paul Junior a lot too. Yeah,
2: yeah. I was really impressed by the. It's, it's felt like it was one continuous take mm-hmm. because at, at certain points you hear them, you hear the lead singer bashing on the sound guy, yeah <laughs> which I thought was kind of awesome. Yeah. You know, we all, you see a lot of bands that just, they just dump on the sound people. Yeah. Oh, the mix is <laughs> horrible, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it was just interesting to hear it address the crowd. It's like, it was, it was kind of like, you know, if, if you, um, have a problem, just talk a talk it over with the sound guy. He's like <laughs> throwing him under the bus. It was great. So I, I enjoyed the music, but I was looking for, I guess the bands that I would compare them to would be Led Zeppelin.
0: Okay. Well, yeah,
2: you got the keyboards, you got acoustic guitar, you got, you know, you got the Les Paul sound. Mm-hmm. And another thing, the bass was very low in the mix and the drums were low in the mix yeah. on this 2008 version. I I really wanted to, you know, pick those instruments out in my head it was kind of i don't know not necessarily muddy but they all kind of blended a lot Mm -hmm. um but i would compare them with yes there was some psychedelia in there i heard interesting okay and uh you know not not so much rush but rush like Hmm. you know so that's that's what i was hearing but it, it felt like an entire concert performance to me it didn't feel like they they cut tracks in different cities and and melded them together for a live yeah, album. Yeah,
0: and I think I think Chicago and uh Louisville, Kentucky are the two places that the original album was recorded. Oh, really? So in so it is two different places. But one of the things that, that's interesting and here's what what is so weird and I think that 2008 version that you referred to that's the version that I first listened to of Strangers in the Night that starts with Hot and Ready. Yep. They've got the intro. Hello, Chicago, would yeah. you please welcome from England, UFO! And they come out, to, you know. Well, then I I get the LP and I play it and I hear, Hello, Chicago, would you please welcome from England, UFO! And then they start playing Natural Thing, completely different song. Oh, And so some of the banter, Phil Mogg, Talking in between. It's like in different places. So do you think it's kind of like George Lucas? Just Because if you remember George Lucas, he
2: had Star Wars, did a yeah. great movie, uh-huh. and he couldn't stop messing he with it. He just
0: kept messing with it. He would had four
2: or five different versions of that movie, and he should have been moving on. Uh, so know, do you think that's the case with these? Uh, I, they just have a lot of stuff. Like, well, we got a bunch of stuff. It may not be great, but someone's going to listen
0: to it. You know what? I hadn't really thought about it that way, but there are... And it could be UFO. It could be Rush. It could be Kiss. Kiss is really notorious about this. Our diehard fans will buy anything we put out. Yeah. So even if we put together a new album and just put them in different order, some schlep is going to buy it. And so that's probably part of that. Probably, you know. Here's let's let's send out a new remix that the that the audio files can buy. I, I always think it's like
2: the death knell of a band that puts out a greatest hits. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as you put that out there, no one's going to listen to anything else you write. <laughs> no. No. Yeah. Oh, it's not on the greatest
0: hits so, album, so it must not be a great hit. Here's Here's an interesting thing about this album. Now, it's a dirty secret and it's not so secret, but most of the time you assume it's a live album, so that means you just recorded a concert, right?
2: That's what I that's my opinion. That's my impression.
0: <clears throat> well, the reality is and there's always arguing back and forth. So, so, for instance, Notorious Kiss Alive. Kiss Alive is basically a studio album with crowd noise. Really? Mixed. Oh, yeah. A lot of Kiss albums were that way. And Bob Ezrin, different producers will tell you, oh, yeah, that's not even uh, Peter Chris playing on that song. We had to bring yeah. Anton Figg in to play because it sounded so crappy. You know, so... <laughs> That happens to a lot. And and it is not, you know, Ozzy would have to go in. So Speak of the Devil, for instance, he had to go in and recut almost all the vocals, right? Um, The thing about UFO, now I don't know about Phil Mogg. I don't know how much they had to doctor. Michael Shanker quit on the middle of, this is the Obsession Tour, UFO's Obsession Tour. They recorded these. Shanker was notoriously... Fickle, Mercurial. You know, he'd he'd quit the band. Obstinate. Obstinate. He quit. He wouldn't go in and redo any solos. So what you're hearing, at least for Shanker, is a live representation of Shanker, which I think, I think the guitar playing is pretty, pretty damn good, good on that album. Is all the solos and stuff. His problem with the album was Ron Nevison, who was the producer. Shanker said there were better takes they could have used. On several of the songs, but Shanker was basing it, and this is what Nevison says is well, Shanker was just listening to his guitar performance, oh. you know, so yeah, I would pick songs where maybe Michael wasn't as strong on a certain song, but Phil sounded better, and Michael was pissed off about that, you know because he was thinking, "Oh no, pick this one because I sound better and that didn't happen. That being said, I think Shanker sounds pretty dang good I think on this album every instrument. Yeah, I think really I think it, I think it good. sounds good. Now you only listened a few times, but for my money, it's funny I choose this. But there's a ballad on there called "Love to Love." Is that it, the one with the
2: acoustic guitar? It's the-
0: got acoustic guitar and piano. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a beautiful song. The arrangement's very pretty. But to me, that is quintessential Michael Shanker. The guitar solo in that song is it's so melodic. It builds. I mean, it goes through the whole range. And that's what Shanker's good at, I think, is he plays those slow songs and they build and they. He's just a master at that. I think it's that's probably my favorite song on the album. It's awesome. Yeah, it it's a good listen.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's interesting. Like I'm, I'm using the same kind of approach that I did when I was in music school. Mm-hmm. Was they had a music library at the at the university I went to, and you would go and mm-hmm. you would check out a score. Wow. So you would see, like, you know, a, a, basically a book of music, you know, like a big coffee table book full of music. And you would listen to it through these those old, uh, like, Cold War era headphones <laughs> yeah, with, yeah. with the Cold War era record players, yeah. you know, the ones that could, you know, that you'll find in a bunker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you listen to them and you'd follow along with the score. Mm-hmm. And... So that's kind of my my approach was to listen to, like, I'm listening for the instrumentation, the musicality, the musicianship, you know, all those kind of things. Yeah. And one thing I kind of wish, you know, that was the time of really experimental albums. You could almost do anything. I wanted to kind of feel a story a little bit more Mm -hmm. than I did.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting on a live album, too. On If you're making an album, right, and think about albums we've covered. We've talked about Dark Side, for sure. Probably some, some – I don't want to necessarily say concept albums, but there are a lot of albums that, in the context of a studio album, you never really think about how much thought goes into the order of the songs. And, yes. And sometimes it is a theme, and so they have to go in a certain order. I wonder how hard that is to pull off live when – at a concert, it's maybe fans are expecting a little different experience, right? Right. Especially if it's a band that's got multiple albums out. They're gonna be drawing they can't play everything. Right. But that's a good that's a good point, you know?
2: And and one of my pet peeves of go, when I go to these concerts is is when the the lead singer doesn't sing and he lets the crowd sing. Oh, that pisses me off. That really, really irritates me because I wanna hear them sing. Ah, you know, totally. I don't wanna hear the you know, if we're singing along, you should be the lead singer should be like, "Oh my gosh, they're yeah. all behind me, not just like, "I'm not gonna sing, you sing, and I'm like it, I'm paying you to sing, buddy. and
0: it's always strategically the parts that are the hardest for the lead singer to sing, oh, yeah. he holds it up and does you sing, yeah, I completely agree and i I don't know, I want it to sound like the record i do i do too. i want i mean." Give a guy a solo spot if he if you know you want the guy to go show off his guitar chops or whatever, but I don't like it when they change the songs up. you know what you oh. know what I, you know what I really hate more I think than I know anything? what you really hate well, this one thing I really hate Judas priest, the biggest guilty party, when they play the songs way too fast, oh yeah I like they just went elvis was terrible at that, oh yeah, you know it's like. I just want to get through this song, so let's play it twice as fast as we normally or, or do. Or when they kind of mess
2: with the audience. Like, we're going to play uh, Message in a Bottle in Ragtime. Oh, time. yeah. Oh,
0: oh, yeah. We're going to we're
2: gonna bring it down a little bit tonight, guys. We're going to... Yeah, no, don't bring it down. Just You'll play see, it like the record. We're going to sing uh, Hellbent for Leather is a ballad tonight. <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, Hellbent, Hellbent for Leather. Yeah. Oh. But, you know, in their defense... They're probably just, they probably get bored of playing this, <coughs> the same songs every night. They you know? probably do. Michael Shanker has played every night of his life Rock Bottom and Doctor Doctor. So, yeah, I guess, I guess they, they might kind of get bored. Another thing I wanted to say about Michael Shanker, which is interesting. I talked about Wishbone Ash. One of the things we mentioned about Wishbone Ash was that they were really into the twin guitar yeah a lot of harmonized, harmonized parts guitar. which was cool and you know by the way i went back and listened to their their latest album is coat of arms which is like from 2020 uh it's really good it's really good um What's my point there? My point is there's still, still some of these classic rock bands that are still putting out good albums. The Graham Bonnet album that just came out. It's a good album. The Michael Schenker album, even with the things I complained about, it's a good album. So there's still good stuff out there if you're a fan of that music. But Michael Schenker, especially in the early albums, you know, before they brought on a keyboard player who also played guitar, he was doing a lot of these harmonized guitar parts by himself. You know, where he'd rec- double-tracking, oh, okay. right? So, uh Doctor, Doctor. You think about Doctor, Doctor, which is a total... So, for example, Iron Maiden will play, sometimes will play Doctor, Doctor. And Iron Maiden is, when I think of Iron Maiden, I think of the twin guitar. So here's, guitar. Here's a twin guitar song that was written by one guy that... You know, I don't know. He was kind of a pioneer in that field, even though he was the only guitar player. But he would write a lot of these harmonized guitar parts. Brian May, same thing. Brian May. um, Eagles. Eagles. But Eagles actually had two guys to play yeah, in. too. Three guys, didn't Yeah, they? exactly. But this, this idea of Shanker, there's a whole interview where he's talking about how he came up with that lick on Dr. Doctor, that harmonized part, and doing it live – when Paul Raymond's there, when he's got another guitar player, they can harmonize. But there was a period of time, a couple albums, where it was just Shanker. and those it's missing because he can't play both of those parts oh, live. He didn't
2: have the the harmonizer. Yeah, of the guitar he didn't pedal. he didn't
0: have it back then. So you're just missing some of those oh. things. So he would write these harmonized parts, but just wouldn't be able to pull them off live. But obviously, with Paul Raymond, you could you could do that. So it's a great album i like it's, it i'm glad you liked it it's um, it's a good listen yeah yeah and it's it's one i think as far as live rock albums go and there these are all snapshots right and one of the things that john john you were very nice when you talked about it, but one of the things that john mentioned about some of these songs earlier which i actually agree is from a songwriting standpoint you could say this about ufo you could say it about wishbone ash you could definitely say it about a lot of the hard rock bands of the seventies and eighties is the songwriting was just pretty (laughs) one-dimensional. That's
2: I got the kind of the the gist is that the, the musicianship and the talent and their ability to perform it may be be, better, maybe greater than their songwriting ability.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's fair. I think that's fair. One thing by way of a little preview, I already sprung this on John, you mentioned, we mentioned it last week, talking about the Chrysalis records and one of the bands that we talked about, I think it was in that episode. Okay, yeah. Or was it maybe on the 70s? I can't remember, but Supertramp. Supertramp, yeah. We were talking about how they were from an era where production was king, and it was a, you know, that... Breakfast in America album took them like a year in the studio and you couldn't do that. You can't do that. They wouldn't let you do that now. So we're going to talk. We're going to both listen to Breakfast in America. Funny story. When I first joined the Columbia House Record Club, <laughs> remember the Columbia House <laughs> Club where you would buy 13 tapes and then your a, mom only had to buy five more. <laughs>
2: yeah. A penny, you get them. Yeah, get them for a penny or a whatever. Penny.
0: So my very first order, I was thinking of this, and I got them on eight track. And,
2: and they weren't cheap either. They were 20 bucks a.
0: Yeah, that's right. 20 so
2: bucks a cassette.
0: You'd have you'd get your 13 for a penny or a dollar, depending on the and deal. These were ch- these were the lowest quality Low dubs. Quality. you quality. They get. they were pretty bad, actually but i got mine on 8track my first oh. order was on 8track this would have been 7980 i can still remember some of the albums i got eagles the long run was one sticks cornerstone was one super tramp breakfast in america was one so yeah. i i have not listened to that album since probably 1982 on the 8track you know but i'm i'm going to i'm going to listen to it I I think my first, my 13 were, I had, I had GTR. Whoa. Awesome.
2: Did you get them on cassette? They were on cassette. Okay. Awesome. The cheapest cassettes. Oh yeah. They they didn't come any, no liner notes or nothing.
0: No, they would just be like white on the, yeah, they were pretty. They
2: were the budget. And then I, I think I got, um, I got an, and how, Oh, I got a Boston album that came out about that time.
0: Nice. I got a Boston cassette from one of yeah. the record clubs, yeah. yeah. But I was just like,
2: my my tastes were very different than what Columbia or yeah. was putting out. <laughs> I think my mom ended up not paying them. I might have some kind of like uh, ding uh, on my credit yeah, from I'm, 40 uh, years
0: ago. Yeah, I think everyone does. I don't know that everyone, anyone ever, they made enough selling them so cheap that you're, yeah, it's funny, but uh, we're going to talk about breakfast in America. Yeah, I think, think that'd be fun. So, one last thing that I wanted to talk about as classic rock anthropologists, and I hate to sound like the Jerry Lewis telethon here—nothing <laughs> against Jerry Lewis—but he's, he's dead. You can say anything you want to do about. It. But you know, we've got some—we've got some big plans, some things we want to do with the podcast. And first of all, we want to thank everyone. Yeah, thank you so for much. listening. And we've gotten great feedback. It's been awesome. We're having a lot of fun doing it. And to it. all those lovely uh, European women that keep filling out our... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yes, don't have to keep doing you that. You don't have to do it. We're <laughs> not
2: going to open your email. We <laughs> yeah. really, I mean, we have mm. an idea of what you're trying to do <laughs> yeah. and it's not going to happen. So keep your so pictures wh- to yourself. So
0: what are what we're saying, if you're real normal people, please email us. But if you're trying to send us your pictures, you don't have to do that yes, anymore. Yes, you so. don't have to do it. <laughs> But the point I wanted to make is if you are able to be a patron if you are able to to support us on Patreon that does so much and allows us to do so much more with the podcast and you can do that for as little as 3 bucks a month. It's cheap. How much is a cup of coffee? Uh, <laughs> I asked you this before.
2: Oh, I went to uh I don't I don't drink a lot of coffee from coffee places but um uh, I went to Sonic, okay? And I got three kids' Sundays and four small uh, blizzards or whatever they are. Small. Okay. Twenty-eight bucks. Woo!
0: So is it safe to say they were four bucks a piece for the little dinky blizzards at Sonic? I got a shake at Sonic, a medium shake, and it was like five bucks. Yeah, it was really good. And and that's the point is if if you could could be a sponsor even for three bucks a month that to be honest you wouldn't even notice yeah truly it would help us a lot so yeah. again we, I, got big, I, we got huge we got big plans we got world plans for world domination here. Right. we're not
2: <laughs> we're not messing around
0: <laughs> so we're gonna buy a broadcast studio here soon that's right we're gonna take over we're taking over but that's i hate to even bring that up but uh i was telling john i hate i hate asking for money but you know what it does make a big difference. Oh yeah. It makes a huge difference. So if if that's something you're able to do, sponsorships start at 3. I think there's a $6 level and like a $12 level or something. Yeah. But whatever you can do, that would surely be appreciated. It helps us a lot and and it lets us do some of these things that we're we're planning to do, so. Yeah. Swag. Swag and some upgrades Merch. We're talking about some equipment, some things we can do from that standpoint. So if you can do it, Great. John, this has been awesome. Another wonderful podcast out of the out of the dark, dirty basement. That's right. Another one in the can. And thank you for listening to this album. It was a pleasure. We will be doing Super Tramps Breakfast in America next. And oh, here's the other thing I forgot to say. If you have recommendations for John to listen, I would love to subject John Please. to you know what? There are some albums that I just know John will roll his eyes. <laughs> And those are the ones oh. I want to give him to listen to. So this week I'm going to go. I got free tickets
2: to go see what are they? New Kids on the Block. No way. <laughs> I think I think the block that they're on is in Arizona, <coughs> and it's near uh, old folks' home. Are you are you serious? New Kids on the Block. Yeah, they're coming to the arena, and uh, my my boss has a has a box seat there. Sweet. He didn't want to go to it, obviously. <laughs>
0: Nice. So I'm going to go
2: see. I think salt and pepper might be there, too. Oh, oh Push
0: it. We're, we'll be looking for a, a report on I will that. definitely report on that. Okay, awesome. So if you've got records that you think John needs to listen to, you know, to expand his I have horizons. A, I, I have a I, – do I have veto power? How many do I get to um, veto? We'll have to work on that. But I, I – Because if it's
2: Captain Beefheart, I'm it, just going to say no. At
0: least initially, you know, I think you'll just have to – you'll just have to suck it. <laughs> <laughs> Suck it up. So, but anyways, it it's been great. Thank you so much for listening, and we
1: will see you guys next time on the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Oh, sweetly. Please like, subscribe, and share. You can email us at classicguitarrock at classicguitarrockmail.com. We're not ordinary people, <laughs> we're morons. We'll see you for the next episode of the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast.